All right. Something useful and productive. That is not the book of Ecclesiastes. That is Acts chapter 2. Why? Well, because nobody ever celebrates Pentecost, and that's a detriment to us. We should. So I made a commitment a few years ago that we're going to. If no one else does, we will. So there we go. <laughs> now, why? Why is it such a big deal? Well, you know, the Holy Spirit who, you know, guides, comforts, instructs, convicts people, all that stuff, you know, the daily living of Christianity in the world. He's the one who does all that. And by the way, first quick note, he, third person of the Trinity, God, oh, it's 2023, I have to say this. God identifies as a male in the Bible. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So, you don't get a he for one, a he for another, and then an it going on another one. And, and trust me, you've said it. I've said it. I will probably do it at some point this morning just because it is hard to think of something that is non-corporeal in nature as something that is he. It just messes with your brain. So try to train yourself into that. It will help you. Now, even though we have done this for the last several years, so for the last several years for Pentecost, we have worked through Acts chapter 2. Most of those are online somewhere. You can hunt them down. It'll probably do you good. But even though those exist, I don't expect you to look them up and learn them and listen to them right now. That would, unless you have a DeLorean, that is not going to work. So our airdrop rules apply. And just because we haven't covered this in a while, at least not since Easter, I like to go over these again. You never, ever, ever airdrop into a passage. You have to consider context, what has gone on before, what is going on after. You have to consider what the message is being proclaimed. You have to consider the type of literature that is being handled. You have to deal with all of those things. So if just by off chance, you know, you just find yourself in a church that doesn't do like we do and just keeps going through a book, be leery if they just keep airdropping into various passages, if they're not giving you all of that background. Look, if they are, God bless them, enjoy it. But if they're not, you have extra work to do in order to evaluate what's being taught. This has been one of the other reasons why I do what I do on a Sunday morning regularly is I try to make it, one, a little bit easier on my brain because Lord knows we all know I need that help. But I also try to make it a little bit easier on your brains as well. It's a lot easier for you to keep up with where we are historically as we're in a book going all the way through. Where, this, where, the, where the setting is not changing, where the history is not adjusting itself every five minutes. The reason I wanted to make, want to make it easier on you is I want you to think through these things. I want you to be able to evaluate and ask questions, and that's simpler if you don't have to dig through 27 layers of history in order to answer it. So, with all of that said, What's our context for Acts chapter 2? Well, we are in the second half of Luke's great work. Luke is our author of the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts. The Gospel of Luke is the beginning work of Jesus from birth all the way through the early ministry, all the way up to the crucifixion, Luke ends his gospel even with the resurrection and the resurrection appearances to the disciples. You get to the book of Acts and Luke flat out tells you in chapter one that he's continuing on his work from the gospel. You get the ascension, you get the great commission, you get the apostles waiting around for what the spirit has promised them. You then get to chapter two where what the spirit has promised them shows up. You have the Holy Spirit come down. You have the flaming fire symbol. You have the proclamation of the languages of the nations. Remember this about Israel. Oh, I'm, I'm going to dig a trench. You ready? Here we go. I always get myself in trouble at least once a Sunday. It's good for me. 
we tr do ourselves a disservice when we translate into the New Testament tongues. I've told you this several times. Sometimes it, a lot of translation decisions are editorial in nature. You have to make a decision on where in the semantic range of a word you're going to fall. When we translate it tongues, we're doing ourselves a disservice because the concept is not what you think of when you think of modern tongues, which is some dude in a really, really nice suit on TBN. Okay, that's not tongues in the Bible. They're languages. They're speaking actual words that mean something. Why is that important? Well, just like the Passover, where you have Jews, I'm tempted, but I'm, I'm going to refrain. You can glance over and see the map. I'm not going to go, it's, it's too big to drag over. It's awesome on Wednesdays, but it's just too big now to drag over functionally without like me catching flight. So, there are Jews from the entirety of the Mediterranean, basically from the Iberian Peninsula in Spain all the way over to Persia, which is modern-day Iran. There are Jews. Faithful Orthodox Jews are coming back to Jerusalem for the festivals. They did this for Passover. They are doing it again for first fruits, which is what Pentecost actually is. So while they would have had a basis in Aramaic, they might have known enough Hebrew to be dangerous. Most of them would have had local dialects and local languages languages that they would have been speaking because they're, you know, all here, tither, and yon. So part of the gift of those languages in Acts chapter 2 is that you're communicating to these people in something that they understood unequivocally. It's like just because you're functional sort of in a language. Like imagine taking a language in high school and college. You know just enough to be dangerous, right? Now imagine someone just comes at you speaking in that language a thousand miles an hour. What's going to happen? You're going to get some of it. You might get most of it, but are you really going to understand all of it? The answer is no. What's beneficial? They speak in your language. That's what's going on at Pentecost, is all of these hearers from all of these different places are hearing the word of God proclaimed to them in a language that they understand without question. There's no doubt. They're going, oh, okay. That's what's going on. That kicks off chapter two. With that going on, you get the accusations. Oh, they're drunk. Look at them just babbling along. Well, because you don't speak all of those different languages. I mean, let's be honest. If you only speak English, and I sat you in a room, and in that room someone was reading the Gospel of John in there was one guy doing it in German, and one guy doing it in Spanish, and one guy doing it in Italian, and one guy doing it in Swahili, and one guy doing it in Russian, and they're doing this loud enough for the entire room to hear. What would you hear? You, you, and you would go, what intarnation is wrong with you people? This is, this is a problem. I can speak perfectly fine. I don't know what you're all doing. Well, that's the accusation. These people are all babbling. They're drunk. Something's terribly wrong. And that's why Peter's got to get up. No, we're not drunk. It's 9 a.m. What kind of people do you think we are? <laughs> we didn't start that early. Come on now. Who do you think we are on vacation here? No, I'm kidding. Don't start at 9 a.m. on vacation. Don't start at 9 a.m. ever. Okay, life advice from Michael. Don't start at 9 a.m. It's bad. Don't do that. No, no, that's even worse. I can't, I can't start if I never stop. No, no, bad, bad Denny, bad Denny, repentance corner. <laughs> we need a little hat for that. So Peter makes that declaration, begins his sermon, and expounds on, of all things, the book of Joel explaining the coming day of judgment and how what you're seeing now is a fulfillment of all of those things. While he's doing that, he's then explaining the hope of David, the hope of all of the Old Testament, and that has been the message. It's been a message of judgment and a message of hope. But let's be honest, with the proclamation of judgment in the beginning and Peter's proclamation of judgment with the coming day of the Lord, there's been a whole lot of um, 
you know, repent or else going on here. And that is what has started off and leads us to this ending of the chapter. So, you are no longer airdropping in. You have your context ready to go? Okay, let's go. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, heard what? Well, that was everything we just mentioned. Fulfillment of God's work, promise of a hope in Christ, warning of judgment against sin. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Now, you just know. You just know beyond a shadow of a doubt, based on everything that you've seen from studying the Gospels, from the knowledge of the Old Testament, what did they want? They wanted what? They wanted a list. When in doubt, what does humanity want? Give me my checklist on the fridge. I want to do this. I want to do this. Like the rich young ruler, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? (laughs) The problem is the question is flawed. They would love to get their list. They would love to have their setting going on. Um, En vogue is always in effect. They're not going to get it. Never, never going to get it. No, not this time. Sorry. (laughs) For those of you that know 90s, uh, some 90s hip hop, you're you're laughing. You, You appreciate that one. They're not getting their list. Instead, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes. This is the gospel response. Then, now, until Jesus comes back, this is the gospel response. You go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark 1. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And by the way, that is it. Do not tie yourself in a knot. Anything that you would add, Paul would tell you from Galatians, is anathema. It's a curse. You are changing the gospel. Anything that you would use then as an application is not the gospel. It is the work of sanctification. This is still, to this day, our argument with the Roman Catholic Church is the smushing together of Roman Catholic doctrine of justification and sanctification. So, I, look, do I want you to be wicked, vile sinners in the world? Like, if you've listened to me for 20 seconds, you know that is not what I want for you. What do I want for you to do? I want you to be obedient, faithful Christians, following after God, believing in all that he has promised and all that he has told you to do, and living well in this place as you persevere into the kingdom. But a lot of that is not gospel proclamation. It is sanctification proclamation. Why? Because I told you last week, I will tell you again, always remember my baseline assumption. I know most of you. You're Christians. You don't need me telling you how to get saved every week. You've started that process. What do you need? How do I, as someone who has trusted in Christ, deal with a world out there where they have not? That's where you live. That's where I live. That's where my kids live. This is where we exist day in and day out. That's why I care about your sanctification so much. And that's why I lean heavily in that direction. But never, never forget that that is not the gospel. I am not getting into the kingdom because I have been good. Like, yay, go me. I'm going to make it. No, that's a sign that I have been transformed. 
My sanctification is proof of my justification, not the cause of it. If you get that twisted, you are not a believer. Repent, trust in Christ, and start again. (laughs) And always remember, that's the beauty of the gospel message. Repent and believe the good news. What's the good news? That Christ has died for sinners. The death you could not die to overcome your sin, he has. The righteousness you could not attain, he has granted to you because of who he is and what he has done. Remember those things and then live in light of that. That's the foundation we're always talking about. If you start getting that twisted, you start trying to say, what must I do not to be saved, but to keep me in the kingdom? Because I know none of you would ever think like that ever in a million years. You've never once found yourself in a bad situation going, God is mad at me and judging me because of my sin. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I always love when I say something like that and I can like see the faces. You're like, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look. I'm not going to blink. <laughs> I always love those. Sorry. I'm, I'm a little twisted. It's okay. Maybe. Hopefully. <laughs> Because that's the reality, though. That's how we think because we are so conditioned. What does man-made religion tell you every single time? You must do this for whatever the deity is to like you, to bless you, to allow you to persevere. Back in pagan days, what was it? You've got to sacrifice this. You've got to offer this. We want the crops to, to grow. I was going to say we want the crops to rain and the rain to fall. Or something. Anyway, you, you know what I mean. I need Vern to correct my agricultural analogies here. You want a good crop. What do we have to do? Well, we have to sacrifice to appease the God. Well, what's the sacrifice? Well, it depends on the area. It depends on the deity. We need a kid. We need a goat. You got to go visit the temple prostitutes. There's something that must be done. We must do this so that the gods will be pleased with us and, you know, lest we be destroyed. That was then. Well, what is it now? Well, you have to follow the right ideology. You have to believe the right thing. You have to go with the flow and not stand outside of the stream. The thing that's always fascinating to me, and this is the truth of the modern world because secularism is the old paganism just recycled and, you know, polished up a little, is remember when secularism, for those of you old enough to remember this, so so I'm in my 40s, so anybody older than me, you should remember this. Remember when secularism used to value individualism, used to value standing apart from the mainstream. It used to uphold contrarianism. Like, I was raised on this. <laughs> don't follow the crowd. But what was the line our parents all used on us? For those of you my age, if all your friends dropped off a bridge, would you do it too? <laughs> You're like, I said that to my kids. <laughs> you were trying to do what? You're trying to break that. We valued it. What do we value now as a society? Because there's no rules to secularism. There's no rules to paganism. The rules are, what do we need to get you to do so that we have power and authority so that you will behave in a manner that we approve of? If that means we want you to stand apart from the people that are in power we don't like, then that's what we'll have you do. If that means we're now the people in power that you don't like, well, you need to shut up and get in line. That's how the old paganism becomes the new paganism. And eventually they're going to circle back around because the out-group will be the in-group and the in-group will be the out-group. And you won't know what the rules are. Why? All other ground is sinking sand. It's blowing about by every wind and wave of doctrine. This is the reality of the world. Christian, you avoid that by understanding that you are in because of the work of Christ, not the work of you, the work of Christ. And the work of you now is a product of you being in because of the work of Christ. It is the result of that glorious gospel promise, and it is the fruit that the Holy Spirit is bringing about in your life. Remember that. Please, 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 please. Don't forget it, because as we go through that, I don't want to have to, like, redo this every time. That would just waste all of our time, okay? (laughs) So, and by the way, when we say then, now, and forevermore, 
Paul helps you with this. Things like Romans 4. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Like, you don't get your paycheck at the end of the week and be like, oh, thank you for blessing me. You say what? Give me my money. <laughs> like, when you don't get paid, there's a problem, right? Why? Because I have earned this. I showed up with the promise of cash at the end of the week. Now it's the end of the week. What, what's supposed to be happening here? Yeah, yeah, cash should be showing up. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's, that's the work analogy. You'd imagine not showing up for work and they paid you anyway. You say what then? Ooh, thank you. <laughs> because I did not deserve this. You have given it to me. Or how would you say? They have graciously given it to you. That's your real world example of how the gospel works. So verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Never forget that is always the scope of God's work. It's always been the scope of God's work. It is always going to be the scope of God's work. The promise given back in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, talking to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And by the way, that's really good news for us. How, how many of you are descendants of Abraham? <laughs> I mean, maybe if you go back far enough, you'd be like, no, I got like a ninth cousin 27 times removed who maybe possibly, no. Ephesians 2. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Yay. But now... Christ Jesus, who formal, who, who, I'm sorry, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, the reminder of all the things going down through history. So the promise to Abraham that all the families will be blessed. The fact that Israel was always a joinable people. I, made this, I always made this mention in Sunday school. I'll do it again here, even though my whole, whole Sunday school class knows us. Israel was always a joinable people. Go back and read Exodus 12. As they're leaving, they're being told about the Passover and how they're going to celebrate it. They're told what? No foreigner or sojourner, no one who's not Israel, Israel can celebrate the Passover, and all Israel goes, got it. Like three verses later. Now, if the foreigner or sojourner among you wishes to celebrate the Passover, but didn't you just, you just said, right? No, they can become God's people. This is the step. This is the process. They're trusting in God. You follow along with that. You get to things in the New Testament explaining that. So this is always easy to remember. The end of Galatians 2 and the end of Romans 2. It's always helpful when Paul does stuff like that. Excuse me, where he tells you what makes you Israel, your faith in Christ, not your physical descendant, but the fact that you are part of God's people makes you, wait for it, part of God's people. He then expands on that in Romans and explains how that works, what God has done, what he is doing. This is part of what he's explaining to the Ephesians. You were outside of the people of God. Now you are what? You are the people of God. Peter does the same thing. You were once not a people but now you are a people. You are a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. I'm going to mix up some of those adjectives. Read, read 1 Peter 2. It will do you good. This is how you are brought in. This is what matters. This is what the Holy Spirit has been doing, and this is what he is still doing, and again, what he will be doing until Jesus comes back. 
rejoice. Verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. I love that. Peter has never seen a dead horse that he thought you should stop beating. He's like, he's proclaimed it. They've asked him to proclaim it. He's proclaimed it, and then he sat down and shut up, right? No, he's like, no. And you over there, be saved. You, 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 everybody. Why? This is the message. This is the power of God. This is the proclamation. This is why they're there. This is why he's there. This is why the work. This is why the signs. This is why the sermon. When's the time to go home? When God says what? Go home. Always get your great example of that from things like the Old Testament. Remember, Noah sends the birds out because he thinks the water might be dried up and he comes in, like the bird doesn't come back telling him what? That there's enough land, that the bird didn't come back. So there's food, there's a place to land. We're good, right? So Noah gets off the boat. Now he sits on the boat for another month. Why? Who told him to get on the boat? God did. Who closed the door of the boat? Who's going to tell him to get off the boat? And you best sit there until God tells you to get off the boat. So Noah's like, oh, we could go out, but you know, I'm going to wait. <laughs> if we're better off, it'll be fine. We got enough animals, it'll be good. <laughs> Round up some more eggs, it'll be good for us. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul expands on this. Since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is the power. Peter expands on it in his own letter, 1 Peter 2. Coming to him is a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, that begins with what? This, a proclamation. Now again, what if they're not listening? That goes back to our trivia question from this morning. Who's got to make that determination? You do. You've got to evaluate. You've got to look at people. You've got to understand, look, I have poured everything that I have into this. I'm done. Okay. You know who's got a clear conscience? You do. Walk away. I feel like I can keep arguing. All right. Get a water break. Sit on the stool. Get back in there. It'll be fine. This is how, the, this is how life works. Verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. That's a lot of people. Because of who? Because of who? Because of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, here's the hard part of the morning. You ready? Rest there, Christian told you this a thousand times. I will continue to tell you this. You can't change anybody's mind. You can't change anybody's heart. You have a hard enough time changing your own mind. You definitely don't change your own heart. Who has to do this work? God does. Now, the reason why I encourage you to rest here is you want some really great uh, examples. Start with Peter. His message starts with Joel. Now, again, if I told you, look, you got one shot from the Old Testament to proclaim the gospel. Where are you going to start with? You'd be like, well, duh, the day of the Lord and Joel with the giant grasshoppers and the darkness and the lightning. That's where I'm going. Yes. Okay, we need to talk. <laughs> Have we tried decaf today? Let's start there. 
<laughs> we need to dial you down from the, like maybe from like 11 to like, six, can we try seven and a half or so and see if that works out a little bit better? Peter goes there to the terrible and awful, not my words, Joel's words, day of the Lord. A reminder of judgment, a reminder of destruction. And then in the midst of that gives them a hope in Christ. And the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, I can work with that. We got this. Let's change some hearts. Let's save 3,000 people today. You want a greater example? Go to the Old Testament. Jonah, for all of his faults and failings, when he finally gets to Nineveh, what's the message? 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You know, the Ninevites were like, and? 39 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, but dude, what do you want us to do? 38 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Like, this is what he wanted. He wanted judgment on Nineveh. His message is, you people are going to be judged by God. And from that, the Holy Spirit changes hearts and minds. Like, Jonah doesn't even want them to be saved. I don't even think he's trying. He's probably like, you know, 40, 40 days and you're going to be overthrown. Unless you repent and believe and go, 38 days. I mean, this is the hope. This is what God does. Remember, we don't spur him to move. We don't make him move. It's not because our prayers are amazing or because we have done an awesome job of proclaiming. Always answer yourself this simple question. Peter's preaching a sermon. Jonah was proclaiming something resembling a sermon. What makes a sermon good? I can give you one simple answer to that, one word answer. Faithfulness. Faithfulness to Scripture. That's what makes it good. If it's rightly proclaiming Christ, it's good. If it's not, it's not. Now look, some people can be more entertaining than others. Let me break my arm, pad, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Some people can be more boring than others, but that's not the mark of faithfulness. That's not the mark of what makes something good or bad. It might be the mark of whether or not you enjoy it more than something else, but that doesn't make it good or bad. Is it faithful? Because what is the means by which the Holy Spirit operates? It's the proclamation of the gospel, and the gospel must start with faithfulness to Scripture, because Scripture is where we find the proclamation of the gospel. And as we are faithful there, we are proclaiming the truth of God, and we are resting in the right place. This is where you have to rest in the world, Christian, is that I live according to a standard that has been handed down by God, and I live according to what he has told me, and I trust that he is the one who will build his kingdom, because I can't. I can't change you. I can't change your mind. I can't change your life. Again, I can barely change my own half the time. I have to rest in a power that I don't have because it is the work that God is accomplishing. It is the work that the Spirit does. And by the way, to try and borrow that, to try and manipulate that, to try and claim that is not me doing a good thing. It's me trying to say, you know what, just can I sit in the chair for a minute? Just like let me run things for like a minute and a half and see how good I can do. What could possibly go wrong with me going up to God and say, hey, I like your seat for a few minutes. You cool with that? <laughs> the answer to that is always what? No, no, we're not cool with that. Go away. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Straight to hell with you. No. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. And this is one of the warnings that I always give you about the modern world is we are so quick to look at the world and say, ooh, I think we can use that. Or, ooh, I think I can borrow that. And look, I will, I will pick on me as an example. Do I torture you with bad pop culture references? Yes. Yes, I do. Do I lean on them and demand them? No. No. 
they're there to bring a little bit of levity to this. Why? Because I can only be so serious for so long. I mean, if you haven't figured that out by now, that's, that's just me. And I have to be me, because if I try to not be me, we're all doomed, because then I gotta be somebody else, and I don't know if he's gonna be any good at anything. <laughs> at least I know what I'm not good at, so I'd rather be me and know what I can and can't do than try to be somebody else and try to pretend I know what I can and cannot do. That just got confusing real quick. Be leery of how we borrow things from the world, be leery of what we bring in from the world, and then say, look, 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 this is what the church should do. No. And that's why you'll never hear me say you should tell stories like I do or you should proclaim the same way that I do or you should borrow bad 80s pop culture references like I do because you're not me. You should be you and be faithful to the text. Because at the end of the day, if you're still sticking around waiting for a bad song reference, you're here for the wrong reason. That's not my problem. That's a you problem. We need to be here for the substance of the word. And again, I will try to make it as fun as I can because I like to have fun. And I've already told you, and I've told you a bunch of times, that life in Christ should be joyful. It should be something that you can rejoice in, something that you actually enjoy. Always remember the simplicity of life. Um, Joy is not misery. (laughs) Joy should actually be enjoyable. It's not always going to be pleasant, but it should be something that you can rejoice and actually enjoy. The fact that you have fellowship with God, fellowship with fellow believers, and that you can rejoice in the future that God has prepared. And in the midst of that, that we can make jokes and we can celebrate and we can laugh and we can be good because otherwise we're them. What's the hope of the world? Darkness. What's the joy in the world? Destruction. Ooh, look, look, look. There's this other sacred thing that humanity has understood for thousands of years. Let's kill it. Ah! That's the world. What sacred thing can we tear down? What can we destroy? What can we undo next? There's no joy in that. That's just the plague of locusts. And do locusts look happy? I mean, be honest. You ever looked at the plague of locusts and been like, they're having so much fun. Look how they just frolic in the cornfields. And oh, they're going to destroy the wheat field next. Isn't it beautiful? (laughs) No, you rightly look at that and you're horrified because it's destruction and it's death. And that's the world. And we don't want to live like that. So be leery of what they bring to you. Be wary of what you accept from them. Evaluate all of these things on the right foundation. Now, now that we've understood all that, We've proclaimed all of this. We have a very, very important question. Now what? The Holy Spirit has just dropped 3,000 people into the apostles' laps. There were 125. You speak English. Come on now. You act like I'm good at this. Now there's 3,125. We're outnumbered here. That's, that's always the, uh, that's the joke from years ago. That's when you're actually parenting. Like, Cameron and I cheat. There's two of us and there's two kids, so we got this. You're really parenting when you're outnumbered. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There is cahooting against us. They're plotting. <laughs> I'm not saying they should be plotting, but be honest. They're plotting. All of a sudden, you can see the wheels turning. Be like, wait, wait. There's, there's three or four or nine of them, and there's two of us. We, we, we got, we've got to be on the point here. We've got to be in control. Otherwise, we're doomed. Well, that's what the apostles are dealing with. There's, there's um, 11 apostles. There's, you know, a bunch of hangers-on and disciples. And now we just got 3,000 converts that know just enough to be dangerous. What should we do? John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, shepherd my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he, he said a third time, do you love me? 
And Jesus said, and Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Well, what pray tell might that look like? Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's what shepherding would look like. Again, according to whose power? John 14. These things I have spoken to you all abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That's what it would look like. Resting where? On the power of God, on the proclamation of his word. Again, what's the apostles' teaching supposed to be about? Peter's supposed to be sitting there going, here you go. I have 12 new principles for how you can live a better life. Tomorrow, I will give you eight principles on how to win friends and influence people. And on Thursday, I will give you seven principles to have a better marriage. And on Saturday, I will give you eight principles on how to raise your children. See, you've heard all of these sermon series, haven't you? All right, my promise to you, you will never hear them from me. <laughs> One, I'm not that clever. Two, I don't know that much. Three, I have a better thing. I have scripture. And this is what the apostles' teaching is. We've done this before. It's always good, worth remembering, though. The New Testament is the collation of the apostles' teaching. So if you were in the temple on Pentecost, I want to understand the testimony to Christ. Where is that found? It is found in the teaching of the apostles. That is the testimony to the mission, to the ministry and mission of Christ. So I would go to the apostles. Well, you're not in the temple at Pentecost in like, you know, 33, 34 AD. You are sitting here in 2023. Where is the testimony to the works of Jesus according to the apostles? It is in scripture. Matthew, apostle follower of Jesus. Mark, gospel of Peter, an apostle, follower of Jesus. Luke, interviewing everybody and their uncle. He's, interv- he's traveling with Paul. He's interviewing Peter. He's interviewing John. He's interviewing Mary. Connection to the apostles. John, apostle, follower of Jesus. All of Paul's letters. So do, do we have to do that or can you just trust me on this when I say all of Paul's letters? <laughs> I don't, I, I'm losing enough brain cells as we go. Paul, an apostle, get out of Paul's letters. You have what? Hebrews, universally understood in the early church to be what? Sermon of Paul written by Luke. So it is written, so it shall be done. That's an official church position. You're stuck, okay? Can't be undone. <laughs> if you want to argue with me, we'll argue about it, but that's, just, but that's just where we're resting. Uh, James, brother of Jesus, uh, elder in the church in Jerusalem, one of the pillars of the church, according to Paul. So basically an apostle, leader of the New Testament church. Jude, same thing, traveling in and around Judea, doing evangelistic work. First, uh, second, and third John, that's... John, again, um, Philemon, that's one of Paul's letters, Revelation, written by John. All of this connected to the apostles. Did we leave anybody out? Oh, Peter, First and Second Peter, that's Peter. See, they knew there was something we were missing. Yeah, First and Second Timothy are not written by Timothy, they're written to Timothy by Paul. Titus is not written to Titus, it is written to, uh, not written by Titus, it's written to Titus, so there you go. Christian, you want the apostolic testimony, you run to your New Testament. And the New Testament is built upon what? The understandings of the gospel message going back to the Old Testament. Even if you want a great example of that, go read Galatians and go read Romans. Paul will lay out for you the salvation by grace through faith goes all the way back to Adam. Not some new thing, you know, Jesus plops in and be like, hey guys, I got a new idea for you. Here's what we're going to do now. No, no, no. It's building upon everything. As a matter of fact, Jesus is castigating the religious leaders of his day because they missed it. Flying right over their heads, splatters on the wall behind them, no idea what's going on because they had read themselves 
into Scripture. They had read their nation, their lives, and their accomplishment into the Bible. You know things like, so what are your five smooth stones so that you can attack the things of your, the Goliaths of your life? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I'm a bad person. I know. One of these days, we'll go back through that again. I did that for Father's Day a few years ago and actually went through that, that passage. But I point these things out because when we do stuff like that, we're bringing psychology, we're bringing sociology, we're bringing the understandings of the world to Scripture and saying, how do we then apply these to our lives? You, you don't. Now, can the blind squirrel find a nut occasionally? Yes. I gave you that example um, a few weeks ago. I read, the, I read that book by, the, by a, uh, a psychiatrist. I'm a psychiatrist, psychologist, one of them. And he was explaining how humanity makes decisions. And the example that he gave was a rider on an elephant. Because if you're riding a horse, you can steer the horse, right? The horse basically does what you want. Can you really do that to an elephant? I mean, they ride them, but it's not the same thing. But the elephant has to be willing to do what you want. <laughs> otherwise, he's like, no, we're going to go this way, dude. That's... And the answer becomes what? You decide, but you're kind of already going in a direction. What's fascinating is he went through all of these examples psychologically and explained what? That humanity basically has their assumptions and their decisions already made, and then we justify them after the fact. <laughs> we don't really look for reasons why we do what we do. We look for explanations why we did what we did <laughs> and why we understand. Now, what was fascinating was he said, if you want to get better decision-making in humanity, you don't need a better writer. You need a better elephant. In other words, you don't need better thinking, you need a better heart. And I was like, dude, you're this close to understanding a scriptural principle that I don't change your mind. The Holy Spirit first has to change your heart. Now that's not bringing psychology to scripture. That's looking at the world and going common grace in action. That someone who denies scripture, someone who denies God, someone who denies the work of the Holy Spirit looks at humanity and sees what? The work of God. He won't recognize it as the work of God, but he sees it. That's a blessing, Christian. That's a confirmation of the universality of the human condition and the universality of the human experience. And a comfort to you that as you go, you can rest in the apostles' teachings. And you can rest in the work of the Holy Spirit because that's how these things actually work. So let's continue on. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, because there is power as testimony. You can go back to Jesus' ministry in John 5. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. I've given you this example before, I'll remind you of it again. Your Bible is not full of miracles. When you read through your Bible, there are outbreaks of miraculous works. You see it at creation. You see it during the Exodus. You see it with the ministry of Elijah. You see it then again where? Jesus. And then you see it during the book of Acts. That's mostly it. Like there's a few here sprinkled in there, but it, I mean, it's not like Jephthah was running around doing miracles every 20 seconds. Even Gideon wasn't doing miraculous things every five minutes. There's like one thing. God scares all the enemies and they run away. Go team. <laughs> I mean, other than that, there's, a, there's one or two things here and there. The major outbreaks occur when? At the creation, 
the prototypical prophet of God and teacher in Moses, the prototypical next prophet in Elijah, the two guys, by the way, that show up at the transfiguration to confirm who Jesus is, the son incarnate coming in, and the apostles testifying to that son. All those things pointing to one person, the accomplishment of God in Christ. That's the miraculous outgoing. This is what's going on here. They're feeling a sense of awe because the miracles are testifying to the reality of their teaching, that they are rightly pointing to Christ and that you should follow. And all those, verse 44, who had believed were together and had all things in common. Because just as there was power as testimony, there is now unity as testimony. Why would there be unity as testimony? Luke 11. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For if you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus uses the phraseology, the finger of God. If I say this is the finger of God, what Bible book do you think of? I'm sorry? Think Daniel. I give you that one. You know what I think? I think Exodus. Moses comes in, does the miracles, and the magicians do what? Same thing. Which again is always the dumbest thing in human history. Because they're sitting there going, Moses has turned all the waters of Egypt into blood. Oh yeah? Watch this. Bring me some water. We'll find some, man. And what are we going to do? We're going to turn the water into blood. See, we're just as special as you are. Um, you know what would be useful, guys? If you can turn the blood back into water, that, that, that would be awesome. You know, Moses brings the frogs out. They're like, oh yeah? <laughs> frogs. Moron, get rid of the frogs. That would be actual power. That would be useful. That would be helpful. You imagine Pharaoh walking around with a headache every... I don't even remember which one it is, but eventually Moses does one and the magicians show up and say what? Um, that's the finger of God. That we got nothing. Why would Jesus want to point back? He points back to the judgment of Daniel and he points back to the redemption of Exodus. A reminder that God's work is a saving work for his people and a judging work for sin. You're trying to tell me that I'm leading people astray when what I'm actually doing is confirming that I'm what? I am who I say that I am and I'm doing what I say that I am doing. And that's what this unity is supposed to bring. This is the commandment. This is what we are supposed to be as his people is following together based on what? Teaching of the apostles, the work of the Holy Spirit, opposition to a pagan world. Verse 45. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Because the Bible is socialist. Wait, what? (laughs) Hold on. I'm not ready yet. Let's start again. No. You think I'm kidding. There is a large segment of the world that would love to take these verses and go, look, 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 look. This is why the workers of the world must unite and we'll seize the means of production. We'll have everything in common and we will all join hands together and own everything and sing Kumbaya in a circle and everything will be wonderful. We will usher in utopia, which by the way, just in case you're wondering, if you go to 19th century philosophy, that was basically everybody's answer. Like if you do this thing, like whatever the steps were, and then you will usher in utopia. That, that was basically every 19th, 19th century philosopher's answer. We need unbridled socialism so that we can usher in utopia. No, 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 no. We need unbridled capitalism so that we can usher in utopia. No, no, no. We need unbridled paganism, and then we will usher in utopia. I always, I'm always astounded. Like, everything will be amazing if you people will just do what I say. <laughs> Which, be honest, isn't that the sin of pride in every human being? Everything will be great if you will just do what I tell you. Well, 
This is one of those verses that they try to grab. Okay, remember rules for your Bible. We have descriptive passages and we have prescriptive passages. Just because your Bible is describing something accurately doesn't mean you're supposed to do it. So when Janus and Jambres turn the water into blood, does that mean, look, 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 the Bible has the magicians in Egypt turning the water into blood. You know what that means? I need to go get some Kool-Aid and head to Lake Michigan. Is that what that means? No, you've missed it. You've missed it big time. Unless you can, now if you can get that much Kool-Aid, again, I have so many questions about you. And I don't think I want them answered, so don't, don't help, all right? No. Joshua goes into the land and slaughters the Canaanites. Why? Because they're the enemies of God and judgment is upon them. Well, God is judging the world and God is judging all sin. So when I find the sinner, I should cut his head off, right? No, 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 no. Please don't do that. There's laws for a reason. We don't work that way. Descriptive versus prescriptive. This is descriptive of what they were doing. Where are some other examples? Matthew 13, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. I think that's a good example of the people that read that and go, you have to then follow this example. Always remember part of the parables are what? To him who has, more will be given. To him who has, will be taken away. God has gifted each human being on this planet differently. Some of you are taller. Some of us are shorter. Some of us are wider. Some of us are something else. Some of us are smarter. Some of us are stronger. How are you supposed to live in this world? Unto the glory of God according to how he has gifted you. This was always the lie we learned. So again, if you're part of my generation, this is the lie they started in on us when we were in like kindergarten is, what are we all going to do when we graduate high school? We're all going to college, right? Um, what about the kid in the corner drooling on himself who can't write his own name when he's 12? Is he going to? I'm just being honest. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. It's not a realistic thing to say, we're all doing this. No, no, we're not. You're you. I'm me. You have to serve you. You have to serve God in your world unto the glory of God. You have to evaluate that. The places where I will continue the argument, you will stop. Places that you will continue the argument, I will stop. That's part of the evaluation. The things that I am good for, the things that I can pursue in this world vocationally are different from the things that you can pursue. You have to balance this, this in your life and you have to evaluate them for yourself. To sit there and say, everybody else has to be just like me is the epitome of pride and to say, I want to sit in God's chair. Welcome to the wrong system. Welcome to a not understanding that there is an actual God who lives and gifts and guides. And we understand that we live according to who he is and what he has done and how he has gifted and accomplished us. Now, if you are shirking your giftings, well, that's a you problem with who? Not with me, with God. You're not living unto the glory of God because you have taken your giftings and said, yeah, you know, I don't feel like doing that today. That's not living unto the glory of God today. You have to evaluate rightly. Acts 5, better, uh, even similar passage in, in the same book. While it remained unsold, the argument with Ananias and Sapphira. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. What's the problem? They saw Barnabas sell some property and give all the money away and everybody praised him. So they're like, we'll sell the property and we'll give most of the money away, but we'll tell you we gave all the money away. What's the apostle's problem? We didn't tell you to sell the property. 
We didn't tell you to give the money. It's your property. That's not very socialist of them, is it? That's your property. You sold it. You can keep the money. You can give the money. We don't care. Just, we just want you to be what? Honest about it. Tell us what you did, and we don't care. But because you lied to God about it, well, then you got a problem with God, and that's why he strikes you dead. <laughs> It'd be so much easier if God still did that, wouldn't it? Like, people start lying to you about stuff at church, and wow, I, I guess Joe there wasn't telling the truth after all. You guys got a cart someplace? We can, like, lug him out of here? <laughs> wouldn't that just be so much easier? I think there have been fewer people in meetings I've been in over the years. <laughs> it would have been a lot more entertaining, too. <laughs> like, thunk, ooh, we got one! Now, again, what's your standard for how life should function? Exodus 20, you shall not steal. That's kind of straightforward, isn't it? Well, if I come to you and say, you need to give me that or else, what's the word for that? It's kind of stealing, isn't it? When you get a simple Bible verse that says, hey, don't do that, but I want to construct a system that allows me to do that. Surely that's okay, right? No, 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 that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Instead, what? James 1. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And how do we live in this world? Things like Philippians 4. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I don't need to impose a system onto the world because I can sit and live and trust in God. And if God grants me abundance, I will rejoice. And if he grants me nothing in this world materially, I can rejoice. Because at the end of the day, I don't need this world, I need him. And as long as I have that, I'm good. Verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. Gee, how could they manage that, I wonder? Unity as testimony. 1 Corinthians 2. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, and yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Remember that. It'll be important in just a second. And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So they actually hung out together, and got along. How in tarnation could they manage that? Joy, not happiness. Peace over who I like. Ready for the dirty little secret? Some of you don't like me as a person. I know, it's hard to believe, isn't it? That there are people that don't like me. <laughs> I didn't hear that. I'm just going to... And I, 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 I heard muttering, but I don't know what it is. So I'm just going to keep on moving. I'm better off probably. There are people in church that you don't necessarily like. It's going to happen. Why? Because there are human beings that you don't like. That's not your biblical standard. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Whether or not I like people is not a basis of whether or not I have fellowship with them or whether or not we can rejoice in the commonality we have in Christ. Who we are before God is the more important thing. And that again reminds you that not everybody's like you and not everybody's like me, and that's actually good news for you. People you don't like are good for you. They rub on your, they embrace you, they rub on your rough edges and help smooth them out, and you do likewise. We're good for each other, believe it or not. And that's part of the importance of what's going on here. They can do this. I mean, just think about this for a second. Go all the way back to the beginning. Different cultures, different languages, Coming together and now doing what? Being one people. How does that work? There's a bigger thing. Cultural differences set aside. 
petty rivalry set aside. There's a higher standard. Not what makes me happy, but what gives me joy. Not what I prefer, but what actually is persevering towards the kingdom. That's what unity and love in the church actually looks like. The curse upon ourselves is that we are so dependent upon our, our proclivities and our preferences. That's the word I want. And therefore, we elevate those to, you know, godlike status. And we sit there and say, well, no, he tells too many stories, or he doesn't tell enough stories, or he has this sort of accent, or he doesn't have that sort of accent. And, and we just like, seriously? What makes it good? Faithfulness. Well, I would prefer the music to be louder. I would prefer that it be quieter. I prefer that it be faster. I would prefer that it be slower. I would prefer that we use this translation. I would prefer that we use, I don't care. <laughs> in God's name and in Christian love. <laughs> I point these out because these are the things that they don't just annoy us. They divide us constantly. I kid you not. I've been in a business meeting where we're voting on, uh, like, imagine, excuse me. Imagine that back wall was wood paneled and there were some, like, like, little decorative pieces on the wood paneling. And it was all stained one color. Just want you to imagine that for a minute. This will be important. We were having a discussion about whether or not we wanted to leave the trim parts stained and paint the back part of it white. So it'd be a little bit brighter. Okay, fine. Three business meetings, two special deacons meetings, and an extra building and grounds committee meeting later, we got to vote on it. We had a list of people. If we vote to paint that white, I'm leaving the church. Seriously? It's paint. Take the vote by secret ballot. Our vice chairman of the deacons gets up and announces that the vote has failed. It did not pass. We are not going to paint it white. He folds it up, puts it in his pocket, and runs out the door. I find out later on that it had passed by one vote. Discretion being the better part of valor, he decided that most of the people that wanted it painted weren't going to leave if we decided not to paint it. And so he lied to everybody and told them that it didn't pass to avoid the fight. That's ridiculous. We're fighting over paint. I know of churches that have fought over carpet colors, divided over what color the, church, the sign at the road is going to be. Oh my goodness. Look, do you have preferences in life? Yes, everybody does. Evaluate carefully. Think through what's the greater thing, what's the important thing, what's the main thing, and make sure we keep it there. Will you be annoyed? Yes. If I haven't annoyed you yet, give it a minute, okay? It's coming at some point. I'm going to... There's a list of things. I don't know why, but it's Tuesday. Usually by Tuesday morning, mid-shower, something I have said on a Sunday morning pops and be like, why did you say that like that? And that'll bother me until about Thursday, and then I'll usually start to get over it. So if I can annoy me with the way that I phrase things, certainly there is more than a slight possibility that I will annoy you with the way that I phrase certain things. I wasn't trying to offend you. I wasn't trying to upset you, and I'm sorry ahead of time, okay? Because believe me, no one is more aggravated by it than me. So there you go. Disclaimer written. If that becomes the most important thing, we've missed it. We've, we've forsaken love, we have forsaken gospel unity, and we've made the secondary things the primary things, and we are no better than the world. That's sanctification. That's where the rough edges have to be smoothed down. That's where we have to learn to actually love each other, even if we don't like each other and function. That's part of the example of the early church, is these cultures coming together, these people from different walks of life coming together and having what in common? The gospel. 
They have the history of the Old Testament, they have the gospel work of Christ, and they have the gifting of the Holy Spirit, and therefore they can walk together. And that's good news. That's again why I like lunch. That's why I like lunch. And you know, I'm not the social butterfly. That's my wife's job. <laughs> and I will talk to you until the end of time, and I will answer every question, but I am that person that, you're like, you want to go to a party? Do I have to? I think I will go, and I will be personable, and I will have fun, but my first thought is, but I'm at home, and I'm comfy, and like I'm in sweatpants. Do I have to put like actual pants on? Okay, here we go. <laughs> That's just a personality thing. Again, I will go, I will have fun, I will be personable, I will do all of those things, but just know in the back of my mind to be like, up until the minute we left the house, I was saying, I'd rather stay home. <laughs> and then I'm fine. It's just, but that's just a personality thing. That's why we need lunch. That's why I need to be here. That's why I need you to be here because I need you guys to get me out of that. So I'm not like a hermit in the woods somewhere, you know, like growing onions in the shade or something. Like, like I always joke about when we're doing church history, the monks of the Eastern Byzantine Empire, the weirdos living in caves out in the desert. Like I would have been one of the weirdos. That would have been me. I get it. First John 4, we love because he first loved us. And if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And the one, the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That's the reminder of what they're doing. In verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Because that's who he is and that's what he does. Part of your comfort should be things like Matthew 16. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, which by the way is not Peter himself, it's the statement Peter made, I will build my church and the gates of the grave will not overpower it. That death will not overcome it, the world will not conquer it, but that Christ will build his church and we can abide there. In the 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's why we rest on scripture. That's why we rest in the apostolic testimony. That's why we rest in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because what is the Holy Spirit doing? He is pointing to Christ, who is pointing to the Father, who has redeemed his people and has made them his people. And we can rejoice. And there's all the things that go with it. But at the end of the day, we can rest because of who we are and what we are because of who Christ is and what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing. Never forget that, Christian. It's not your work. It's his. Your joy is not dependent on you. It is dependent on what he has already accomplished and what he has promised. Let's pray.